Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And you're tuned in to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Iris and I'm joined with Tracy in the studio. Hello. And thanks to Encyclopedia for the previous hour of broadcasting. Would you like to do an acknowledgement? Yeah, sure. So do I do it now? Yeah. Okay. We acknowledge, we would like to acknowledge the uh, Wurundjeri and Bunwarugan people of the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. We pay respect to the elders past and present and emerging and extent that respect to any First Nations people listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge their unceded sovereignty and that a treaty was never, never signed. Thank you. Thanks, Tracy. Um, yeah, so we've got a bunch on t- for today's show. We're going to be talking about the religious, the so-called religious freedom debate shortly and after that talking about the corporate sponsorship and other problems with Pride Centre as well as um, the problems of ableism that disabled people face in universities. And the first interview will be with Evan and later will be with Amber. So stay tuned to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR. Funded by the City of Yarra. And you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. Um, I have Evan Van Zick on the line. Um, can you hear me, Evan? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, Evan's an activist involved in many campaigns, including community action against homophobia in Sydney and no pride in detention. We're going to be talking about the so-called religious freedom debate that's been happening for the last while after the postal survey, really, um, because Malcolm Turnbull commissioned the Radic Religious Freedom Review, which was kept under wraps until October last year, and now the Morrison government has been planning to make legislative change, um, which we still haven't seen the details of what they're proposing. And on the 16th of July, the not-for-profit Equality Australia, backed by a lot of other not-for-profits, released a statement um, in support of that was entitled Joint LGBTIQ Plus Community Statement in Support of Religious Discrimination Protections. Um, it sort of caught me surprised that they took the whole framing and what other things with that. Um, did it take you by surprise? Yeah, um, I expected um, somewhat of a united front against religious freedom thing in the wake of Israel um, for Lao, um, because it's quite clear that this is an attack on the queer community. Um, but it seems like people wanting to be within the tent and look more at negotiation as opposed to dissent as a way forward. Yeah, um, I was listening to Lee Kearney from the Human Rights Law Centre talk about it, and Lee was talking about wanting to be at the table of the Morrison government, which is a bit strange from my perspective, considering... um, how many homophobic, transphobic and racist things the Morrison government is responsible for in terms of mandatory detention, in terms of the whole... Um, there's endless things to talk about there, but um, it seems a lot of these organisations um, think the Morrison government... They see the Morrison government as more innocent than they are somehow. Yeah, definitely. I think you're on the money there. Um, they seem to see it as almost like a neutral body, um, that you know may be homophobic, but we don't know. It may be racist, but we don't know. Um, and working on that political basis, which is entirely incorrect, because like we all know that Scott Morrison, for example, is someone who has a trophy on his desk about his politics and record on refugees. 
someone who effectively has a trophy about concentration camps. There's no if that we need to ask about racism, homophobia or anything else, uh, particularly when the LNP in their Queensland conference addressed by Scott Morrison just discussed the burqa ban. Um, they're not innocent in any way, shape or form. They are not neutral. Mm, no. Um, and we're seeing in a statement, um, these are, like the statement seems to suggest there is space to combat Islamophobia and anti-Semitism through this legislation, um, and it sort of collapses um, differences into this term like people of faith, when like white Christians don't really su- they don't suffer discrimination in this society, this Christian sort of supremacist society. Um, do you want to talk through how the sort of how the statement has framed the issue? Yeah, so I suppose the statement's framing. Um, suggests that there is an attack on religious freedoms that we need to defend against, but it doesn't acknowledge that religious freedom is code for the Christian right and its values. Um, in the same way, you know, we're probably accustomed, if a man goes, oh, but I, want, I don't want feminism, I want equalism, we'll be like, oh, that, that's actually code for being MRA. And you wouldn't come out with a big support of being like, oh, we oppose feminism, we recognise men are under attack, we want equalism. Like, we recognise that that's politically weak. Um, What we say is, you know, we stand against Islamophobia. Like, you'd actually want to come out and be like, what do we want, Muslim people? And that's, like, really important as a question of solidarity. You can't just address that as a token and be like, oh, yeah, we support Muslims, and that's our justification for accepting the framing of the Liberal Party about the idea that religious freedom by the Christian right are under attack. Because once we accept that, we accept that their entire package, there's a legitimate discussion there. And it is not legitimate. Like, there is no inner-city gay elite that is forcing everyone to change their pronouns across the world in some kind of, like, hellish institution where homophobes, like the embittered minority, are, like, whipped or something. Like, it's, you know, that, that, that's, like, the most absurd fan fiction possible. And that's kind of what this success was. You know, it, in some ways, it's quite innocent um, because they want to say, like, we support um, anti-discrimination, but it's just accepting their framing, and that puts us in a weaker position. Mm, yeah, it is worrying. Um, can you talk more about the political context? Because we've had, over the past year or two, a lot of opinion polls that have showed there's a lot of support against existing exemptions to discrimination that um, religious organisations like Christian schools have? Yeah, so the majority of people who vote for the Liberal Party, who vote for Labour, who vote for Greens, oppose the existing exemption, um, many of which, like, literally, they were actually ushered in under a Labour government, if we're honest. Like, um, like but there is support um, removing them. There is a rejection of the current religious freedoms, even by religious people and a lot of the polling that's been done. And these polls have turned like, majorities that are stronger than the majorities that were there for marriage equality. Clearly, like, there's been a fighting constituency built since the campaign. Like, over all that fighting marriage equality, that says we don't want these exemptions. There's no legitimacy for the right to discriminate, which is what this really is. Like, none at all. So it's really unclear why there's any ambivalence. But even Scott Morrison was making pledges when he saw he was on the cusp of losing the election that he would get rid of the right to discriminate because he conceded that it was ridiculous. Now we're in the reverse position. Like, this is something that's popularly rejected. There's political opposition to it, um, both to the religious freedoms that are being instituted, the support that's coming from the government and the establishment towards um, bigoted millionaire footballers. And there's also like strong political support for removing all kinds of exemptions. Yeah, there is. So it is like, it is bizarre in some ways. Um, I read someone suggested that this... The framing of this maybe might be preparing like the ALP to also support wherever whatever the legislation is. Would that be a concern you'd have? Yeah. So 
obviously we will notice that there's a lot of roving debates within the Labour Party right now. Um, Christina Keneally and Chris Bowen, for instance, have come out and said that we need to be more tolerant towards people of religious background, um, which to me read like code that, you know, they were worried that they were too um, on the front foot about queer rights. Um, I think it's incorrect because the Labour Party ran dead on that question for the most part. Um, but that seems to be something that people are actually taking away. And I think when we make the concession that, oh, yeah, there are, like, religious freedoms that are under attack, you know, we need to guard against that and try to play the game, we embolden the right wing of the Labour Party to say, actually, look, you know, the queer community, the LGBTIQA community, they actually agree with us that, you know, we're too militant about um, equality. You know, let's turn it down. Let's support religious people, by which they always mean the Christian right. So there is a debate, um, but it's really the thing that I'm concerned about is it's not clear where Labor left stand, because the right being really comfortable going public. Christina Keneally is really comfortable going public. Chris Bowen's being really comfortable being really comfortable going public, but where are the left? Where is Penny Sharp, for instance, in New South Wales, coming out against this and saying, this is really concerning, I don't support religious freedom? Um, we're actually not seeing that. We're not seeing that public dissent. And that's really concerning because there is no Labour Party policy to support religious freedom. There is none. There's no reason they need to be gagged right now. But they're just letting the right run the narrative. And what's happening right now with um, some of the joint statements emboldens Labour rights. Yeah, it's concerning and um, it is um, sort of campaigning 101 not to accept your like like opponent's framing. And I had a look in the US and it said that, and it shows that um, religious freedom laws are really nothing but entrenching exemptions and allowing like bigotry. So yeah, would you have any more to say on that? Yeah, I mean, internationally, one thing that was quite interesting um, uh, Ricky Martin, for instance, um, actually came out against a similar push um, by gay orgs to like, try to legitimise in his country. I forget like which country, um, my apologies on that one, but it was interesting to see that all across the board, you know, we have people coming out against this push from the far right in a really clear way, and they recognise that it is part of the far right. They recognise that a lot of these ideas come out of Trump. You know, he hosted a conference like when talking about the US suggesting that this is something that we need to do. And it's obvious, you know, he's tried to make trans people a real clear target um, in order to build the scapegoating narrative. And the seeds of that exist within Australian politics, where people use safe schools as a battering ram. And when they use safe schools as a battering ram, what they mean is that they really want to attack um, trans and otherwise gender non-conforming youth, right? Like the obsession with scapegoating them, um, which is quite vital. Yeah, it is. Um, so all the not-for-profits um, suggested that, that that statement position was the best way of standing together. How do you think is what do you think is the best way of standing together? I think the best way of standing together is not to say we will oppose the bill if it's bad. Let's wait and see. Please let us be consulted. It is to know that the Liberal Party is not competent in any way, shape, or form in bringing out equality for religious people like especially persecuted minorities like Muslims that they wish to ban, where they have Eric Abet saying that he wants to stop all Muslim immigration. Um, they're not competent bringing that in. They're not competent bringing in non-homophobic legislation. Otherwise, they wouldn't have dragged something like marriage equality out for as long as, this, like, what is, was it, 13 years? They wouldn't have dragged it out that long, right, if they weren't homophobic. So I think we need to outright say we oppose this legislation. No way, shape or form are we going to let it through. We are not going to let the Liberal Party's agenda come through. And we're going to make sure that we rally. For instance, go to the rally on August 3rd in Sydney and mobilise for that. And I believe there's rallies happening in Melbourne and Brisbane as well. That we should just mobilise against and stop this government. Because if we want to make sure that this bill stops, we have to put pressure on the Labour Party and the independents in the upper house to actually come in line and say... We oppose homophobia as well. And that cannot be done if we're empowering people like Christina Keneally and Chris Bowen to run Labor's narrative. And if we're, like, encouraging people... Because Jackie Lambie, like, 
who knows how she's going to vote. And if we're telling her, oh, yeah, all the LGBTIQA community really wants you to vote for religious freedoms, who knows what's actually going to happen? So we need to come out against that hard and stop this government in its tracks. When we stop this government in its tracks over the budget that we had under Tony Abbott, it destabilised the government. When we kept pushing for marriage equality, it tore the government in half and overthrew a prime minister. We can do that if we rally. We can do that if we organise. We cannot do that with a statement that concedes that the government is correct. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you so much for joining us here on Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, Evan. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me, Iris. And, yeah, that was Evan Van... I'm a community organiser involved in community action against homophobia and also has been involved in No Pride in Detention as well. I'm joined in the studio with Amber Karanokoulos, who is a non-practicing lawyer, writer and editor editor at Demos Journal. Their work has appeared in Flood Media and Archer Magazine, among other places. They tweet at grim underscore tweet. It's good to have you. Thank you. We're going to be talking first about the Pride Centre and later about the article Abbott has recently written in Overland magazine about how disabled academics are not very present in academia and in a university. Um, but first, on the Pride Centre, so, so some context for listeners. The Pride Centre was announced by the Andrews government in April 2016 with the government stumping up an initial $15 million initial funds. Some of the major tenants of the Victorian Pride Centre are expected to be Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard, Joy FM, Melbourne Queer Film Festival, Minus 18, Australian Lesbian Gay Archives, Midsummer Festival. Um, and the major tenant, Thorn Harbour Health, formerly the Victorian AIDS Council, contributed $10 million to the construction and running costs of the Victorian Pride Centre. And it's being built in Fitzroy, St Kilda, and construction started very recently in June. Um, and some further context, the Pride Centre hasn't been without controversy since it began. Um, in August 2017, Rouge penned an article pointing out there was a lack of people of colour and Indigenous folks involved in the setting up of the Pride Centre. And at the same time, there was lots of discussions about consultations with the Pride Centre being mired, and I quote from the article Rouge and Medi wrote um, on SBS, that um, consultations have been mired from, with racism, transphobia, ableism and homophobia. Any stance to stamp out these issues have been futile at best, with the board stating that they will follow the often inadequate principles set by the Equal Opportunity Act and their organisational values. And yet, without any Aboriginal representation on the board and only one person of colour, it is evident that its shortcomings are inherent to the design of the institution. So that was in August 2017. Um, and now we've seen just recently, a month, a few months ago, that the Pride Centre announced that they have their first major corporate sponsor, and that sponsor is IBM. Um, and I thought I'd ask you to talk about who IBM are and how they are pinkwashing through the, their sponsorship of the Pride Centre. Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll speak to the IBM stuff firstly. Um, a lot of people... So there's a couple of things. I think a few people have said that... So the Victorian Pride Centre structure is has a board mm. with non-executive directors and most of those people are sort of pulled from business world. Um, as you're saying, there's a lack of a bit uh, proper representation in there. Um, so what I've seen and heard, and this is all just like what I am privy to myself, is that like the um, community reference group as part of the Victorian Pride Centre um, weren't consulted on this decision. It was announced a few months ago. Um, IBM have a very checkered history. Um, they're a large multinational that pay, in 2016, 17, paid no tax, even though they generated taxable income. <laughs> um, and historically, uh, as a large company, they uh, have been accused of facilitating the Nazi Holocaust by uh, 
dealings with the German Nazi Party, um, providing technologies for um, stamp cards. Um, and, of course, as we know, a lot of uh, that involved the systemic uh, killing of LGBTQAI peoples as well as Jewish peoples and Roma peoples and people with disabilities. Um, and in more recent times, um, IBM have also been uh, accused of uh, also working with uh, governments and providing technologies in the Philippines where um, human rights abuses were being committed and to apartheid South Africa, actually in that context, um, providing technologies that were um, being used to denationalised black South Africans. So, yeah, a company with <laughs> a lot of um, contested history. Yeah, for sure. And we're seeing um, IBM deploy sort of a public relations strategy that tries to put all its violence in the past. Um, and it talks about that they've been committed to equality since 1953. Um, yeah, it's interesting to, to see how corporations position themselves as friends and not foes here. Yeah, and um, I was reading the IBM's, or IBM's statement about this announcement and it mentions uh, we've been something like, uh, you know, we've been t protecting the rights of our employees uh, to not be discriminated against on the basis of sexuality and it's like, cool, that's a legal obligation. Um, but also they mention like they have this ally championship ally program and they've adopted some LGBTI logos and stuff. Um, yeah. So they have a vested interest in well. There's, there's sort of two aspects to that. The the the, the def, you know bringing up more of a definition of pinkwashing, really like offsetting or um, distracting from the negative things that they're doing, and simultaneously using the donation of their funds to fund projects that are amenable to their kind of political interests as a, a corporation, or um, as well as that, like using that as a way to avoid paying taxes. So there's like multiple prongs to it, as like I think of it that way. Yeah, there's multiple tiers to this like um, strategy and how they're presenting themselves versus like the actuality of IBM. Um, another little tidbit about IBM is IBM was one of the was the corporation that fired. Lynn Conway, who was an American computer scientist who um, was a trans woman hoping to transition on a job in 1968. And that's part of the rewriting history. They don't really talk about that so much. Mm. Um, yeah, so we're hearing a lot from IBM and, and in Pride in general about corporations speaking language of inclusion and diversity. Um, but what does this really mean? Does it just say something about their strategy? What is it actually materially changing, if anything? Like the, the sort of terms diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a really great article called Diversity is a White Word. Um, I really love that article and obviously that talks about it from, you know, when it's talking about particular groups, um, you know, people of colour and their presence within the sort of diversity word. Um, but it's often like an inclusion into this sort of pre-existing structure that doesn't fundamentally change that the structure. It's like, will it let you in? <laughs> um, that sort of approach, I think of it as sort of like that. Yeah. I did also notice that one of the other, uh, other than announcement of IBM as a principal partner for three years uh, with the Victorian Pride Centre, there's also this parallel um, sort of pinkwashing thing going on where Bank uh, Australia is also offering um, like a sponsorship thing where they will fund, partially fund the Pride Centre through encouraging people to change their home loan um, to be with them or get a home loan with them. So um, in a way, I don't know, that not only does that also kind of appeal to like some very homonormative ideals, 
Um, but who is that meant to be speaking to? Like, it's certainly not the huge amount of the queer community that does not, is not propertyed, like, is not I- not interested in that, is excluded from that. And then there's also the, the role of the state as well in the pink the pink washing as well, like, separate to the corporations, which is another another point you could, we could go into. Mm, yeah, of course, we could go there. So I guess this is really getting to um, who is benefiting from a Pride Centre and it's getting to, like, who is left out? I think that question is harder because, you know, of course, like, our community is so, I don't want to say diverse because we're just talking about the problems with that word, heterogeneous, right? Like, um, there are some people that think it's a good location or there's some people that I think um, there's good aspects to it and I'm amenable to the idea that there is something salvageable about a community centre that is in in hopes or in theory on paper like community controlled. Um, in terms of who benefits, I think one of the things that I just kind of comes to my mind is like who sees themselves reflected in the Pride Centre and I guess it's also about the, the organisations and services that are there, like there are a lot of people um, within the um, LGBTI community that are not engaged with services um, or not engaged with not-for-profits or um, or perhaps the particular organisations that are uh, the anchor tenants, like some of them have a bit more of a masculinist uh, cis culture. Um, that can be alienating for some people, Um at the same time, I, I think another aspect to this um, as well is like the role of gentrification in the, the area that it's being located in. And I know there's a lot of, um, yes, there was an EOI process and the Port Phillip area is where it ended up due to the best bids um, through that process, which the board did design. (laughs) So um, I think to give a a good, I think it's a good illustration of it. It's like right across from the Pride Centre, where the Pride Centre will be, there is the former Gatwick Hotel, where that used to be, which was, uh, it's now luxury apartments. So, um, you know, and certainly the area is has historic importance for queer communities. Um, I don't, I would never deny that. I think that's very much apparent. So it's it's really hard to see, I think, what it, who is going to feel accepted there and, and welcome there. And I think that's something we will have to see. But what I, I personally feel from the consult, right from the beginning and the consultation process is that it's some of the most disenfranchised and marginalised members of the community, our community or the, the groups that really have to fight to be heard have been left out or thrown under the bus. Um, that will have to wait and see what it is like. But so far, I don't think... I don't think there's a lot, It's very promising. <laughs> and I think, um, like with any um, particular social movements or groups... The people who are most privileged kind of get to uh, run the show, and um, I think as well with the consultation process, which was being run by the Victorian state government, community leaders are the people that are approached, or community organisations that are seen to represent mm. uh, the community. Um, but uh, you know, there's some real elements of that of that that are aligned to bourgeois kind of interests so I guess it's up in the air we'll see I don't those are sort of my thoughts about the process so far yeah yeah some really good points there um yeah I think a lot of um um people of color indigenous queers have written about gentrification and um, a politically mobile sort of white, some the most privileged white, a politically mobile sections of LGBTI circles displacing um, like communities they're living in in inner city through gentrification. 
And how St Kilda is like a stark example because you have like the real wealth and you have like people with no wealth at all. It's like that sort of suburb where there's like like with the Gatwick um, that's was brought up by the block that it's really absurd yeah. example of like the society we live in because when that was closed, most of the people there went to prison because that housing option yeah. was closed. And it's like is the Pride Centre. There's stuff, there's stuff in the announcement about, oh, there's money for homelessness services, but the Pride Centre isn't for homeless people, for homeless queers, homeless um, sex workers, homeless trans people. It isn't. Mm. That's not the ethos of it, of it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I read an article about the closure of the Gatwick that said that about 30 of the, you know, and some of those tenants were long, uh, long-term tenants there and, I read that about 30 of them are, that are women are now in prison. And I think we really need to draw the parallels there between, um, you know, what this government is doing, where it's building more prisons and locking up more people. Uh, and that's directly related to the the changes to bail laws and all of these things that do impact the queer community that are, the this... The, this kind of activity makes it harder to see the, those repressive elements because we're in a position of we've got our pride centre. You don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. It, I mean, mm. yeah, it's it's very hard to, but we have to make those connections. It, it puts you in a it puts the organisations in a compromised position, and of course, you know. All community organisations grapple with how to be uh, sustainable in funding. And that's been one of the criticisms, I guess, when you are critical of the, the Pride Centre or the process so far. Um, people say, oh, yeah, but the money has to come from somewhere. But what is missing there is like an understanding of the not-for-profit industrial complex. And while we can definitely be sympathetic to... Some organisations, perhaps some more so than others, it's like, you know, it's about thinking. I think it's the two, the difference between thinking about their place as things that originated from a social movement and have a role in where that social, social movement or social movements are going and that they have a responsibility to the trajectory of things. <laughs> Sorry, long-winded answer or com- comment, but... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm glad we got to that point because I'm thinking a lot about how um, the Andrews government is using sections to, um, of the non-profit community organisations and um, giving them, like, scraps of funding and how some of these organisations are very uncritical of the Andrews government and, like, praising them for the small bits they're giving them and, in contrast, so many um, aspects of society, so many people are just experiencing um, crisis because of the Andrews government locking up people without, um, as you said, with the bail laws, people are just going to jail at rapid rates, particularly Indigenous women are the highest increasing um, population of people at the moment. Um, And yet the Andrews government brands itself as a progressive government through the Pride Centre and with the support of these groups, yeah. Um, so what do you think about how to approach the Pride Centre? There's so many problems with it. What can, is there anything worth cel- like celebrating about it? I, like, I think so. And I think sometimes when critique is made of these things, it's, you're seen as like, oh, you're writing it off entirely. It's, I, like, on paper, yeah, the idea of a community-controlled centre that, um, is is great, but there's a whole bunch of questions, and I, I think, like kind of I was saying before, I think I, I talk to people I know, and they're like, don't even know about what the Pride Center is, don't know how much money has been put into it, and I think, like any of these things, the most marginalized people in the community don't don't know about it or weren't weren't as engaged in the process. Um, I think there's definitely stuff salvageable about it. It's just the direction that things have been going in with it. Um, you know, since it was announced, there was going to be a feasibility study and consultation. And I think it's just gotten to a point, particularly, I think the clincher for me, is, clincher, I don't know if that's the right term, but 
the decisive thing is this IBM announcement. It just, at what point does it, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, that seems to be a particularly egregious moment in the the trajectory of, of, of it. Um, and it just sort of reflects back to me so many of the problems with this not-for-profit model of community uh, community organising or forms of, of achieving change um, and a fundamental inability to critique capitalist structures um, and adopting a more pro-state approach. Um, hmm. Mm, yeah. Um, I saw an article in June that Sydney's Inner West Council um, got exposed by the tabloid press because they had a report calling for a Pride Centre and the Pride Centre, um, the discussion in the report was about excluding cops, not having binary toilets, having a people of colour space and all these things that are really outrageous and radical for the press. Um, so, I mean, like the Pride Centre never really even started with that sort of thing anyway. It's really has been, um, yeah, mired in some of the things we've talked about. And I think as well, like, and that reminds me of another thing is that um, someone, I can't remember their name, I think it was Jennifer Mills, wrote a really great article in Overland about uh, their experience of working uh, in a Pride Centre in Surrey Hills uh, in Sydney uh, and making the point that a lot of the press releases that have come out about the Pride Centre and statements that the Pride Centre board makes um, or the, you know, Pride Centre, the the organisation, the entity makes, is that, oh, it's the first, Australia's first Pride Centre, but it there wa- it wasn't. Like, it's also this kind of rewriting of history mm. and about other attempts to do similar things in, in the past. Um, so that, from my understanding, that was a Pride Centre that was a bunch of community organisations that were housed in one place and there were spaces that, community rooms and things like that, um, that you could you could hire out and um, and it closed in 2007 I think but there's also this kind of like rewriting of history as well what that that article like yeah. you just talked about kind of that springs to mind like there are have been multiple attempts to do something like this before or, or and possibly into the future yeah um, early in the year I spoke to people about Roberta Perkins. Um, she was a trans rights, sex worker rights um, ad- activist and sociologist. And she was involved in setting up all these little like support places and organizations in the 70s and 80s. And like so much of, yeah, that history isn't really known or talked about. And, and instead, these corporate models of like community support are like upheld as like the solution or something. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to add on the Pride Centre? Um, let me think. <laughs> oh, I guess just like, like you were sort of saying before about the other announcements that had recently been made and that the last federal election in terms of like LGBTI funding, there was a small portion that went to it was like homelessness grants for other organisations, but it had an LGBTI focus, but it wasn't very much money. Um, the, the other big ticket thing uh, prior to the Victorian election 2018 last last year, um, the main thing the Victorian Labor said was there's going to be an expansion of the Pride Fund and that one of the things is that for 2021 there's going to be another Pride uh, event uh, that will be held in Fitzroy, which is basically, mm, yeah. I, I feel like it's just like win over the queer community through events and through more and more kind of attempts to corporatize and de-radicalize pride and um, what, yeah, what the legacy of pride means. Um, and I mean, this is also kind of just the continuation of what we see every year with Midsummer and it gets increasingly worse, like cops in the parade, um, like Australian Defence Forces are there every year, uh, ANZ is there. Like, it's just this stuff, 
with the Pride Centre and it doesn't come out of nowhere and it's just part of a continuation of these these histories and these these things, I think. And I think we need to, yeah, I think this has been really good because I think we need to learn about how do we address these, how do we, yeah, how do we get people to listen that I don't, I don't think this is the way to get to make, uh, I don't know, who, yeah, the, the long-term meaningful change that from an anti-capitalist approach you'd want to achieve. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> um, how about we turn to um, the article you most recently wrote that was published in Overland Online um, entitled Where Are All the Disabled Academics? Um, could you just touch on some of the things you wrote about in that? Yeah, sure. So um, I earlier this year there was a Twitter hashtag called Why Disabled People Drop Out and it was involved people, um, you know, students talking about the things that had led them to drop out of uh, high school, uh, university, like, oh, you know, uh, vocational education, a whole range of things, or their experiences just with education in general. And it, I, I find those conversations so heartening because, well, maybe not heartening, but I definitely relate to them. Like, um, and... At the same time, I was involved in, I went to a whole bunch of launches for uh, Raymond Connell's uh, book, The Good University, and I had mm. finished reading it. And um, I'm also uh, a sub-editor of a uh, demos journal, so we're um, doing a edition soon on the concept of the university. So I've been thinking a lot about universities this year, and I was thinking about my own experience and sort of how I'd come to think about disability a lot more and view myself as a disabled person. And I wanted to really draw some links between, uh, you know, universities as institutions, but the disciplines that flourish and the forms of knowledge within universities and how they are very uh, they silence other forms of subjugated knowledge and let's still having a critique of universities as institutions, the forms of knowledge in universities, but also the struggles for, for the workforce in universities and how to bring those things together. <laughs> um, and, uh, of course, I was also thinking about sort of the position people with disabilities are put in um, through frameworks like anti-discrimination law, which uh, are, are purposely very individualising. So thinking about, uh, you know, the and a bit more background to that is like anti-discrimination law generally is about, in Australia at least, limited opportunities for class actions. You have to, as an individual, make a complaint. And so it's it's very like... You, the thinking can become a bit siloed and I just wanted to think about what are the opportunities for just radically de dismantling or having a, a different vision of, you know, de democratised education and um, and particularly seeing the neoliberal um, iterations of of the university and how that perp perpetuates and in deeply entrenches ableism. Um, yeah, so that's what I tried to write about. <laughs> Sorry, long, long answer. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I haven't read Raywin Connell's The Good University, but um, so that's where she writes about the privilege machine, is it? Yeah, so she has a chapter. Uh, I thought I thought that was a great sort of like metaphor for universities. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like I like that because it, you know, universities kind of have historically exist to reproduce privilege. Uh, and I think they mostly still kind of do that. Um, so, and I think that term is really useful. Um, and in terms of like, they, they've also got histories of uh, institutionalized discrimination of people with disabilities, but also a whole range of other people, like, you know, women till very recently. So keeping those things very much alive in when we have these conversations, I think 
has been useful. And it's a good book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I want to check it out. Um, so, yeah, in your piece, you sort of, like, end on a question of of asking for the university to actually meaningfully address um, ableism. The university has to relinquish power to disabled people. What would that mean? I think, like, there's this critique of neoliberal universities that I, you know, I agree with it and totally ascribe to it, like, you know, 1980s Dawkins reforms, good things, some good things happen, like, you know, uh, around that time, participation is kind of widened, uh, more Commonwealth-supported places and more people are accessing education and things like that, but at the same time, there's also these new policies that neoliberalise the universities and and in doing so, I think in that, you know, competitive framework as a person with a disability in a university, you internalise all these things that, you know, are about you being a neoliberal subject, but because you have a disability, you can't be that. So you feel powerlessness, you feel weakness, like you feel uncompetitive, like all the things you're not meant to be, um, to be like the good student. Um, So I think it's like as institutions... They need to devolve the hierarchies and break down power, which are even more solidified, I think, in a neoliberal environment. Um, and, and and there's almost like that pushback against like the the f- remasculinizing the plate the space, which is what Raymond Connell talks about as well. Like, um, and 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 because there is widened participation, almost like it becomes almost sort of harder and like. They are still really privileged spaces and mm. I think there's the knowledge aspect like really fundamentally breaking down who is a producer of knowledge because it's really everyone <laughs> but it, universities gatekeep it and I mean I still highly value, you know, the intellectual work of people within universities so it's not saying that but also it's about the conditions on the ground and stuff as well so like conditions for workers that needs to be broken down as well and then the demands of students and where those where their struggles for more democratic education can combine with the demands of um, workers and that's not just like uh, you know people that are in teaching roles it's you know people who work in admin roles and universities like you know, disability liaison units, which, like, you know, face cuts and things like that. Mm. Um, it's about combining those struggles and trying to actually radically retransform the pedagogies and the conditions rather than, like, let's have some more diversity and inclusion. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what I was trying to get at. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and you, you write about um, that the neoliberal university... Um, the sort of onslaught of the, the neoliberal university falls disproportionately on disabled academics and students. Yeah, um, so things are sort of getting worse as like university cuts, costs, cut, cuts support. That's mm. what you're sort of seeing in the last, not to romanticise how things like, yeah. you know, um, yeah. Totally, and that's such a good point because I think some of the debate falls into that a lot of the time. It's like, oh, things used to be better before the 80s. Let's try and go back to that. It's like, we can't. <laughs> when I, I guess what like, I mean by that is like, um, and I say as well, I, it's not just ableism. Like there are so many isms that are compounded. Yeah. There's so few like people of colour within academia in particular roles. Um, uh, but even though ex- the ex- expansion of the university sector and uh, increasing participation has meant that more people can participate, um, but the barriers are still very much there. I guess um, what I mean about disproportionately is like in academia, the culture is very much like, and this is just based on my experience and what I've been exposed to, like if you can't handle the heat, you got to get out of the kitchen. And the the overwork is immense. Um, the, um, and I think, yeah, 
people with disabilities, particularly, I think there's so many ways that the, you know, the caring arrangements and the, the, the sort of things that we would argue for, like, are not, it's not possible to, those structures are so what need to be broken apart for participation, like mm. meaningful participation, you know. Um, so that's sort of what I was trying to get at. I guess maybe yeah. that it's those conditions are more invisibilised, perhaps. Um, yeah. Mm. And I know, um, yeah, many disability writers write about... Um, Things I'm just thinking, having a thought about like time and how with Neoliberal University turning things over, who is like whose needs are not met, like whose yeah from access needs to like learning needs, it's just like everything. Everything is like turning over fast to turn over the Neoliberal University, and I don't know. Mm. Yeah, and it's like everything is very much metrics based and it's like continually measure your impact and all these different ways of quantifying things and no one has time <laughs> like um yeah it's so that disability is like a maybe like a in my kind of view like a, a different conception of what that means hmm mm. Yeah, did you have any more things to add? No, I feel like I've talked about too many things. <laughs> but thank you. Thanks for it. I thought that was a good conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really good to no, have thank you. thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.